Hello, everyone. Good to be back. Good to be back from Africa. Uh, man, I missed you guys. It felt like I was gone forever. It also felt like a blink of an eye. So um, I'm grateful to get my bearings back on a Sunday morning preaching in English. And I was I was joking around with the guitar player earlier. I was like, I, I listened to all the sermons that were preached while I was gone, and I'm just so grateful for our church and the gifts that God has brought for the gift of teaching, and I, I just hope I remember how to preach, but I've gotten one under the belt, and so thank you for your grace as I remember how to speak God's word without a translator, and um, we're going to do that. We're going to continue our study in Ecclesiastes, but as Noah mentioned, I also want to give like a very quick snapshot of the trip. Uh, I, the people I've ran into so far have been like, what was the trip about? How has it been? Tell us about it. And I'm like, I can't. How can I? How can I tell you about two plus weeks in Africa and all we saw and, and try to boil it down into a, a quick missions update? Um, so I'm going to give a, a little snapshot really quickly now, and then I'm also going to invite you to something because I imagine some of you um, would like to go in more detail. In fact, I know that some people from our church are like, tell me everything that you have because I am connected with an organization that's working in the Congo. I have a pastor that I, the church I came from has connections in Africa. So grateful for all of the ways that we went really just to see what God was going to do and now already stirring our church to try to uh, find out how to follow God's obedience. So I'll share a couple photos now. We got uh, back. These are three photos that kind of summarize the three categories our trip. On the left, you see Pastor Gene, uh, who every Sunday that he's here, still in Africa now, he leads our Congolese fellowship, and, and he preaches and cares for them. And man, spending the two weeks just traveling with him and having him be the servant to our team, translating from English to Swahili or English to French, and then just really showing us the ropes of the Congolese culture, at one point helping uh, get us both, uh, Daniel and I and Courtney, who's over there, out of the customs detainee center, uh, which was great to have a guy that would uh, know how to navigate that. And there he is preaching at, uh, as we went, just praying that God would open doors. Here's one of the churches that we had no connection with. And then it was clear that God was just giving us relationships and we got to share the word. And his heart for the Congo is so it's just so real. He, he, it's not lost on him that God saved him from a civil war, gave him refuge in Boise, and called him to be a pastor here, and now he's sending him back to the Congo for potentially a whole new wave of the gospel reaching his people. So he has a huge heart for the country of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and he, um, I think he's really being stirred, as so many are in our church right now, is like, what doors is God opening from Boise to the Congo that we can really uh, take part in another wave of the Great Commission? So that was us interacting with some of the churches and John preaching. The middle photo uh, was really a culmination of the, the way this trip unfolded. We went with a connection to a few orphanages, and so as we went, we were meeting the orphanage workers and meeting the kids and then also just saying yes to every opportunity to meet more people and and um, by the end we were just doing dinners with the orphan kids and the workers and the fellow co-laborers of the gospel and um, throughout Ecclesiastes one of the themes that will come up and how we are to respond to what can often feel like 
meaninglessness of life is to enjoy what God gives us and feast. And this was a little preview as we would just take everyone out to dinner and eat and, and enjoy each other's company and, and realize that we have such different stories with God, but we have the same joy in feasting together. So it was a little slice of heaven, and it will inspire, um, I hope, what we are inviting you into if you want to know more about Africa. And you'll see our little team mixed in. There's Courtney and Daniel and Daniela and, and the other people we came mixed in with all the people that we were meeting along the way. And then there's the missionary couple that our church supports. You guys, um, I hope, remember when we did the send-off to Jacob and Tara, who desired to go to the Congo. So it's like, without really a, a huge amount of wisdom on my part, or like none, we had a family that was giving into orphanage orphanages in the Congo. We had a pastor that was pastoring a church in the Congo. And we had a missionary couple that desired to be sent to the Congo. And we got to visit them at the hangar where he flies planes to the remote villages of the Congo to bring supplies, medicine, groceries, food, and the gospel. And that couple, just seeing them in their little native spot was so awesome. And really, one of the things I come home with was just a huge sense of gratitude for who we are as a church without realizing it sometimes because we all live busy American lives and we um, sometimes don't realize how blessed we are just to be doing this right now. But you can see churches around the world are real limited in the resources they have. And uh, we are able to support people who would go across the world to be on mission with the gospel. So I come back with just a huge thank you because you guys give. We just prayed for the offering and we are able to support uh, their family now and then whatever else God is doing. So uh, just love you as a church body that, that I get to represent and excited to see how God uses the open doors. And so to that point, if you go to the next kind of slide, we have really the, the idea that I'm kind of hoping to get to is that I think there's some of you that really are going to be stirred for missions that has everything to do with Africa. We're a church that I hope stirs a heart for missions, whether it's support or visiting. And right now, the Holy Spirit just to be stirring some of you for what's going on in Africa. So if you feel like, man, I just want to know more than the couple photos you shared, and I would love to know how to pray or be involved or maybe potentially go, um, Gene gets back from Africa. He's still there. He he went beyond where we went, all the way up to Goma, which is where he's from. And he, when he gets back, we're going to kind of regather the team and collect all of the stories and photos and, and try to discern what the next steps are for the team that was there and, and how we can help as a church. And so I'm going to invite all of you that want to come to Friday, July 29th. We're going to have a dinner and share some photos and share stories and spend... Um, as long as we need to, just gathering the people that, that have a heart for it. So you're invited to that. If you want to get signed up directly for the invitation to that, we're gathering emails, but I'll also just send a church-wide email to remind you. And then I hope to see all of you guys on July 29th. So that is the Africa snapshot. That's like the, the, the movie preview. And then I'm inviting you to the premiere on uh, July 29th, if I may. So... Um, with that said, we're going to get into Ecclesiastes chapter 5, but of course, 
there's just times when we have a cultural moment as believers and as Americans and as people that um, are trying to figure out the times we live in. And clearly we're going through one of those now. As Noah already prayed, there was the Roe v. Wade decision. The opinion came out and they're sending all of the, um, amen. Really, by my understanding, sending it back to the states so that states can now uh, create laws that represent the wishes of the state. And so, um, in one sense, praise God, because as I understand God's gift of life, it is one of the things that we were called to from the very beginning to be stewards of. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And he gives us dominion over this amazing gift of life. He breathes life into Adam in the garden. And, and, and it's, he says he knows us from our mother's womb. And he calls us with plans and good works that he has prepared beforehand, before we know about them, before our parents even meet us, the sovereign God of creation knows our name. And so uh, praise God that the laws of our land seem to be bending towards that type of justice. And there's reason for us to be grateful for that. And also, because I'm a pastor, I just realize that this is a pastoring moment as well. This is something that, as Ecclesiastes says, the crooked line will never be made straight. And so we are not people who expect every detail of the world that we live in to get worked out by the courts that we set up uh, that we hope represent God's justice. And I know that for every applause, there is half of our country that has tears. And that's true pretty much of every category that you can think of. And it's certainly true in the day that we woke up this morning. And so um, praise God for his goodness in the way that he is creating all of us to know him and his design for life. And also praise God that the simple law that he has for us is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And I encourage all of you, no matter where you are this morning, because um, anytime you go through a cultural moment, you find yourself trying to find your own sea legs in that moment. Um, I encourage you to love your neighbor as yourself. I encourage you to be kind and gracious to every person that is navigating the state of our country right now. And I encourage you to look unto God, even beyond the courts and the, the laws of our land, for all things that we hope for. So with all of that said, uh, from Africa to the Supreme Court to just our time in the Word this morning, why don't we pray and ask God to give us a hope in Him that will give us the discernment for how we are to uh, praise him and love others. So God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all of the ways that we are encouraged for who you are as our maker and the one who knows us from our mother's womb and calls us to good works, to know you and to love you and to represent you to this world, Lord. So help us to do that. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the call to uh, be people who have dominion over that gift. And we thank you also that uh, no matter what we go through, we are called to be lights in the dark. So help us to do that. Help us to hear your word this morning and look to you for all things in our life that we need wisdom for, we need guidance for. And we pray this morning that we would find wisdom and guidance in your word to your glory and to our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, shall we? This, is a, uh, uh, this has been quite the study 
I was, I kicked off the study and then I got caught up in the chapters that I was away and so grateful for, again, another gratitude of our church is we are a blessed church when it comes to the administration of the preaching. So grateful for uh, John Whitaker and Tom Velasco and Kurt Krager, the guys who taught in my absence and, and what they shared and I think that's part of where I'm like, I just hope I remember how to preach. Big, big shoes to fill. Um, one of the themes that is continually coming up, the question, what really matters? What really matters in, in our relationships? What really matters in, in our pursuit of purpose and the toiling and the work that all of you guys have on your to-do list? And we come now to a question of what really matters and maybe the most substantive way that we could ask it and that is what we're doing right now. What really matters in the way that we come to worship God? And so we're going to read just the first seven verses this morning, and then the, the writer of Ecclesiastes will shift towards the abundance of wealth that we have the fork in the road to use for God's glory or for our own hurt, and we'll look at all of that next week. But today we look at how we approach God, how we worship God, how we seek Him, and another fork in the road. There is a way that we do everything we're doing this morning that will be beneficial to our lives. And the danger, hate to preach the bad news, there is something that we're doing this morning that can actually make us fools if we don't get it right. So let's read the first uh, seven verses and then we'll take it from there. Walk prudently, verse one. When you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to have vowed than to vow and not pay. And do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity, but fear God. So the theme of the book Vanity, meaninglessness, vanity in all the words and the religious acts that we can take part in. And if we land on the side of vanity, he actually has more than one time where he'll call that foolishness. And so I, as I listened to the sermons that were preached leading up to this, they actually painted an interesting picture of how maybe Solomon or the writer of Ecclesiastes was sitting back and kind of thinking about his life. John Whitaker said uh, he imagines the writer of Ecclesiastes with an old brown leather journal, and he's sitting and just taking notes and reflecting on the life that he led and, led and all the opportunities that went well and, and went haywire and the meaninglessness that he found in some of those things. And then last week, Kirk said, now, I read this, and I see a, a, a man with a pipe. It's like the picture of wisdom. That's probably because you spent time in England. You got the man and maybe a tweed coat and a pipe, and, and now he's journaling. And, and I'll add one layer to that, that picture. Now imagine this man with the journal and the pipe, and he's reflecting on life, and he's sitting outside of a church. 
and he's watching all of the people come in. And in Solomon's day, it's, it's reflecting as he watches the, the busyness that surrounds the temple on one of those holy days. And he thinks about all of the ways in that reflection that it can go haywire. And as I think of myself journaling and reflecting on my own approach to God, I have to agree that there are times in our lives that in the pursuit of God that, that brings us through the doors. There are times in my life, and I'm sure in yours, where it has been less than beneficial to show up to church. It's been times in your life probably where you showed up and the sermon was like right over your head, the songs went right through your ears, and you left maybe less wise than when you came. In fact, if that happened and you got nothing out of church, it, you would probably qualify as someone that foolish, foolishly even came. And so today we look at how the, the split happens. Things that would draw you in or an attitude of your life that draws you in that is a waste of your time. And then what is Solomon doing here in a way that this chapter really offers us some answers to point us in the way that we should go, to redeem the time that you guys are offering God this morning. So he starts by saying this, walk prudently when you go to the house of God. One commentator says, good and faithful worship begins before it begins, and how many of us can sense that. You guys are second service people, so you have more time to work out all of the frustrations of just getting to church. So maybe you're more godly just by taking a little more time in the morning. But how many of you just felt your, your waywardness happen even before you walk in the doors? It's like I, I, I just talked to my wife, and she's like, I couldn't find any shoes for the girls on the way in. And I'm like, I am trying to worship the Lord right now. <laughs> Not talk about the struggles of getting the kids dressed. And it's like... On the way to church, you have to get through the traffic, you have to get through the crazy driving, you have to get through your, your cravings for coffee and the to-do list of things you could be doing other than go to church. And one of the first things Solomon's like, he's sitting back and watching, he says, you better guard your steps. You better realize that coming to church is on par with going anything, going anywhere serious in your life. Imagine walking into the job interview. And how many of you would go into that interview and it's like, just, just putting it all together. I've thought nothing about this interview. I'm walking in, I'm sitting down, and I'm just waiting for it to be over. It's like, be prudent, be thoughtful. Uh, some commentators say, this is like guarding your steps the way other areas of scripture call you to guard your heart. You come expecting that God, when you open his word, would want to speak to you, expecting that God, when the people gather to sing songs, would want to meet with you, expecting that your praise is good for your soul. But then he says, also, as you actually get through the doors, and so now, real time, this is a, a check for all of our hearts and minds. He says, when you go, walk prudently, and when you go to the house of God, draw near to here rather than give the sacrifice of fools. So there's our first dichotomy. There is something that can happen where you can actually come to church, and this may come as a total shock to some of you, but you're not actually coming to engage with the word of God. You're coming to sit in the back. You're coming because someone invited you. You're coming because this is a great place to network or maybe meet someone that would spark your interest and you can invite them to coffee. But there are intentions other than meeting with God, and that's nothing new under the sun. This is not a 21st century American church problem that we are now so consumeristic in every other area of our life that it just bleeds into the church. But as you read scripture and as you hear the heeding and warning of someone who would not walk prudently, one of the first things they say is not everyone who hangs out at the temple or the synagogue or the church is actually interested in God. 
And that's probably been true of all of us at times. I remember when I first started preaching, I was down at the district in the underground before the district had beautiful windows looking out at, you know, the street and letting the sunlight in. It was in a basement. And it was one of the first times that I invited someone to preach other than me. And I was just going to enjoy the Sunday and let someone else preach. And it was his very first time preaching. And when we were in the old district, we could really only get like 50, 60 people in there. And we were just starting out. So we didn't have any microphones. So now you had a layer on someone's first time preaching where they have to kind of amplify and project. And so he's doing what a good mic check would look like without a microphone, which is like, hey, can you hear me over there? It's like, yes. He's like, can you guys hear me before I get started? Yes. And then he looks into the far back and he says, how about you in the very farthest? Can you hear me? And I'll never forget, the man looked up and he goes, it doesn't matter because I'm really not listening. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's the worst way to start your first sermon ever is the guy who's actually being honest. Because most people don't have that kind of gumption to just tell you what's actually going on in their heart. Most people are like, yeah, 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 sorry. And then they close the email really quick. Or they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was on my phone, but I hope you didn't see me. And the reality is, if I did the poll now and you were honest, not everyone here is even listening, which is kind of the shame of preaching on come to hear. The ones who need to hear it aren't listening. So I'm sorry to tell you, but you missed the most important part of the message for yourself. (laughs) And then he said, if you don't come to hear, If you're not expectant that, yes, God uses weak vessels of clay and fools for Christ to project the message, but actually it's the living word of God. And he has something that could be uniquely for each one of you to encourage you or to call you, to refresh you. If you're not doing that, there is an alternative to what you are doing. And it's not just checking your email. He says, come near to here rather than. So the alternative is that you are offering the sacrifice of fools. And here is the first, uh, the first claim that what you're doing this morning, what we could all default to, is to come to church and actually leave more foolish than where we came. And I see some practical wisdom in this right out the gate. If you're not here listening, you could be anywhere right now. And this is not the best place to hang out if you're not interested in the Word of God. I just remember coming in this morning. I'm watching the sunrise and driving by the river and seeing the foothills, and I'm thinking... This is a beautiful day. You could be on the green belt riding a bike right now. You could be walking through the foothills with your friends, and you could, be, uh, you could be doing anything. And if you're not here to hear from God, you probably should be somewhere else, because why would you be here? And so this is the point of the message where some of you, class dismissed if you want. I don't want to. You can stay also. But if you're interested in... The things I just said, like, no shame, be honest, and you can leave. And by, with my blessing, go hang out in the foothills and try to hear from God from nature. And that's the sacrifice that sometimes we think we're offering just by being here. It's like, well, I'm going to give God my Sunday morning. That's my version of religion. I do my own thing mostly, but on Sunday mornings, I never miss. And here I am offering my time. And God's like, I don't need another person listening to a sermon they're not listening to. It's like, well, I'm, I'm going to be here, and I will stand up and sit down, and I'll, I'll help fill the pews. It's like God doesn't need the sacrifice of your one hour on Sunday, which makes me think of another story, but it doesn't come from my own life. It actually comes from a sitcom that many of you have probably heard of. It's still on air, but I don't think most people watch it anymore. It's called The Simpsons. How many remember The Simpsons? Well, just in case you don't remember, it's about 
a dysfunctional family that probably does some things in their life that we can all relate to, and so we laugh rather than admit that we do it, right? That's how those sitcoms work. And in, in one of these scenes, Homer, husband, dad, is taking Marge out for her birthday. And they get to the restaurant, and Homer's doing pretty good so far. He invites everyone in. He even invites her sisters, you know, his sister-in-law. So that's a sacrifice of love. And then he's got, a, uh, he's got the waiters that come around. He, like, snaps his fingers, and they come in, and they sing the song to her. And then he puts out his hand, and he has this huge box, and he, he, he gives it across the table to Marge. And as he's reaching out, a bowling ball just falls right out and lands on her cake. And she's like, a bowling ball? <laughs> really? You give me a bowling ball? And he's like, hey, if you don't like it, I know someone who would. <laughs> and then you, you zoom in, and he gave her a bowling ball that says, Homer, <laughs> that, that's my gift to you, honey. So men and husbands, any, anyone who has a gift to give, um, don't do that. Give a gift the other person would want. That's practical. Now the spiritual. How often do we say to God, here it is. This is what I want to get for you. And it's actually for you. It's actually you're giving God this, okay, I got the perfect gift, God. I know you called me to pick up a cross and lay down my life and, 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 and exchange my will for yours and die to my neighbor and proclaim your glory. And you can send me anywhere you want and I will listen and obey and I'll be filled with joy. That sounds great, but I got a better gift. I'll do whatever I want, and I'll see you on Sunday. What do you think? Uh, what do you think, God? This is the gift from me to you. And if you don't like it, I do. That's what I like. And all these people will see me, and it'll be great. And it's like your worship with your name on it. The sacrifice of fools. And now the more acute version of what this looks like, because in the religious context, Jesus comes on the scene and is essentially saying, your sacrifice is foolish. You worship me with your lips, and your heart is far from me. It doesn't work that way. And he gives this scary example in Matthew chapter 7 of people who offer the sacrifice of fools and they never correct their ways until it's too late. And they meet him on that day, meaning the day the work is turned into the, to the judge, to the teacher, and they say, look all that we did in your name. We prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we did mighty wonders in your name. And what does he say? I don't even know you. Those were all things that you were doing apart from me, not with me, not in a relationship with me, not according to my will for your life. You did it according to your will for your life. And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, this is where we get a sacrifice of fools. They don't even know they're offering evil. You're not aligned with God's plan for how all of this is supposed to work. That you would hear the word, he would wash you and cleanse you by the word, and then you obedient to the word, a light in the dark to his glory and your joy. That's righteousness. And then all of the religious things that you're checking off the box just to do them, it says it's actually evil. You're, being, you're going farther from God. You're, you're taking risk at, at actually de defaming his name, doing things in his name that he never called you to. So then he goes on to say, as he gets practical with what a sacrifice of fools will continue to look like, he says, don't be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are in earth. Therefore, uh, take away from today's study, let your words be few. That's one of the challenging things when we read the Bible and compare it to how we feel like religion should go is we often get very talkative when we're trying to prove things to other people and to God. 
And when you read the wisdom writings from Proverbs, we did a study in James, and now we're in Ecclesiastes, and it's just a theme you cannot leave. Your words that are empty are bad. Let your words be few. Don't make hasty uh, commitments to God and where your heart has nothing to do with it. And so, again, we just think about our own context this morning. We come in to hear the word, and we also have a part to play. The, the way that we are called to unite in our voice towards God, one voice singing his praises. And with prudence, we come in praying that although we never sing our words completely and perfectly when we offer the praises to God, we sometimes sing them like they don't matter at all. They're just hasty words that we're singing. But imagine the worship leader is calling us to worship in some of these ways where we're making a commitment to God. We sing songs about the commitment we make to him. I surrender all is something that we sing. Now, all of us are being cleansed of the desire to not fully surrender all. But none of us have the excuse that we just sing and, and worship God and proclaim that we surrender all as a way that's just something that we said, but we don't think about it at all. I think of another story. We were actually at the, the pastor's conference, or it's like a pastor's and wives getaway in McCall, and we went there at the beginning of the year. And we're talking about being genuine, empower the Holy Spirit so that we're not just leaning on tradition or leaning on any template, but like genuine worship before God. And one of the pastors shared, it was Dan Davis from, from Mountain Home, that they were singing a song. And it was one of those, I surrender all, no place I'd rather be. You can have it all, Lord. These cry out to God, just laying down our life in worship. And he's praising and singing and hoping that his heart would, would be genuine in, that, in, those, in those words. And he, he opens his eyes and he sees a girl in the very back. She's singing along, I surrender all, while she's scrolling Instagram and hitting her heart and comment button. And as she's surrendering all, she's also thinking about a vacation she'd like to take and some clothes she'd like to buy, and some friends that she's envious of. And her heart is on display that is often representative of our hearts. We surrender some, but we don't surrender all. We, no place I'd rather be, but I do have somewhere to go, so that song's only valid until 45 minutes after the sermon. Uh, you can have it all, you can have half. And the writer this morning is saying, when you come in, your words mean something, or they don't. So how are we doing when it comes to the words that we offer God? He says, don't make anything, but let your words be few. Sometimes I think when we're just getting started in following Jesus, we, we get this pull from how we truly and genuinely follow Jesus to how we are, to sometimes our own folly, just learning how to follow Christianity. And there's sometimes a difference in the two. I mean, we are Christians as we follow Jesus, but sometimes we just become Christians rather than disciples of Christ. And one of the forks in the road is this feeling that you just need to be verbose. You need to be able to prove it with your words. And how many in your early walk with Jesus got invited to a prayer meeting and you heard everyone pray and you thought, I can't pray like that. I'd rather say nothing. And the danger of that is that when you hear Jesus' commentary on prayer, and when you hear the word talk about our words and how it's dangerous to overuse them, it, it usually is pulling us back to a simplistic call to God. I love you, Jesus. I love you, God. A simple prayer is something that God honors and loves, and yet oftentimes we won't pray if we don't have enough words to say, or we won't pray if we don't have enough time to really make it awesome. And what this says this morning is, listen, you're on earth and God's in heaven. 
Your words will not cover the gap. The gap is too wide for you to march up to the heavenly realm with God based off how many words you can impress him with. Let your words be few and know that if this is going to work, it's because God has mercy on your soul and he listens to your cry. And now he gives us a warning of these words. In a parallel, and it took me a minute as I was thinking this through, what this was getting at. Verse 3, read it with me. For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. So this is uh, Hebrew parallelism. Describing two things, so as you understand one, you can understand the other. And the first one says... For a dream comes through much activity. For as a dream comes through much activity, so a fool's voice is known by his many words. The first part of that, we hear dream and we think American dream. We hear dream and we think I got big plans for my life and we dream it and achieve it. But as you think about the context of what Solomon is saying, this would be a negative connotation of a dream. This would be like, you know how fools have a lot of words and it goes sour on them because their words turn into emptiness? In the same way, when you think about something for too much, you just get, it says, much activity, it turns into something that your mind will take over in the form of a bad dream. And this is how one commentator puts it. The more you worry, the more likely you are to have a bad dream. And the more you talk, the more likely you are to say something foolish. So have you guys ever had a season of worry where you're just overthinking something? And what happens that night? It's like all in your brain. In fact, this week we were staying with my parents and they have a, a pool and my mom woke up and she said, I just had the worst nightmare. All day long I was just thinking about your kids climbing a fence or getting out of the house and somehow falling into the pool not being able to swim. And I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And then that night I had a dream. I don't even want to say it, but all your kids drowned. And I was like, oh no, that's what happens. You, you think and you think and your mind goes crazy. And then at that night, you can't turn it off and it turns into a nightmare. The same thing happens with your words. As you become a, a person who is making all these proclamations about God in your life, or talking about what you're going to do for God, or talking about all of the ways that you love God or honor God, and then you're going to make a plan with God, and you're going to do things for God, you're going to vow to God. He says, eventually what will happen if you try to prove yourself through your words is some of your words will not be backed up with your action, which is always the crux of the lesson when it talks about keeping our words few. I was listening to a commencement speech, and, and one of the takeaways from the speech, it was so simple and profound, said to young people going out to conquer the world, do what you say you're going to do. How many employers are looking for people that will work for them, that you get a commitment from them, and they will follow through on the commitment? How many parents are looking for children? It's like, got the plan? Yes, mom. And then you come home, and you're like, you didn't do it. And part of just being a godly person is having the same respect for God. In, in our worship, in the way that the message lands on our hearts and, and the Holy Spirit is moving us and we respond by, okay, God, I, I, I'm going to change. I'm going to repent. I'm going to move towards your will and away from my disobedience. And Ecclesiastes now says, this is why your words are dangerous. Verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And this just seems to be an ongoing lesson of our life. 
unto God. I mean, oftentimes your entry point into the kingdom comes with an impossible vow that you offer God as he meets you in a moment of despair. I mean, how many of you have had that moment where you find yourself life broken down? It's like, I can't believe I'm in this legal trouble. I cannot believe that I wasted all the finances and now I have to answer for the negative debt. I cannot believe that this relationship is just falling apart and it's broken. And God brings us to poverty in spirit. We get on our knees and say, God, if you're real and you save me, I will do anything for you. You send me, you, I'll be a pastor, I'll be a preacher, I'm talking to myself, I'll, be, I'll work at a church, I'll move to Africa, I will love you and live for you, and then what happens? God's like, I love you. And of course it's my desire to give you a future and a hope, plans of good and not of evil. Come along, here's the firm foundation. And how many of us look back on those moments of our life where we were crying out to God and we made a deal and then we're like, well, now that everything's better... <laughs> I'm not so sure that maybe, maybe I got a little excited with my commitment levels. He says, it's better that you never would have vowed. It's better that you never would have made that commitment. And on an acute level, it's like, how many of us this morning? It's like, I just want to live for you. I'm never going to look at online stuff again. I'm never going to treat this person this way again. And of course, over and over again in our life, we learn the lesson of God's grace that our words can be empty, but his never are. And in our religious duty, we can say things that we never meant. And if you do that, you are walking towards a foolish version of what all of this is supposed to be. God is not after people who make side deals with him and have no commitment to actually live for him. So he says, better to not have vowed than to say you were going to do it and not do it. And so even this morning, some of you are standing under a vow of God. I think of the married couples. Yesterday I was looking at Ecclesiastes 5 in preparation also for a wedding. Another couple of our church, to God's glory, is getting married. And I'm thinking, wow, the marriage vow. That is an intense vow. And even as I, they repeat after me, till death do us part. So often we drift from the commitments that we make before God. And so even right now, it's like, remember the commitment that you made to one another because it gets hard and riches turn into poverty and health turns into sickness and things get difficult. But God calls us into these relationships with each other that represent our relationship with him. He says, remember what you said on that anniversary day and make a commitment to live for it. And that is really, as Paul will say, husband and wife coming together is actually a mystery that proclaims a deeper picture of Christ and his church, where he is the groom and the church is the bride, and each one of us, one by one, get to enter into the bride of Christ on the day of our baptism. And it is a vow and a covenant that some of you have made who have given your life to Christ. He met you in your moment of despair. He heard your cry for salvation. He brought you into a revelation of who he was, and then you went into the water of death, and you came out of the water of life. And then what happens? death to my will, death to my life, living for you, Jesus, but not so fast. My life is now more complicated than it was when I was in the river. And we live in a generation going through what's called the deconstruction of faith. And many of us have come against the, the moment of that when we're like, oh, were we so sure that that salvation moment was something that we want to live for now? 
Because church is weird now and politics are strange. And are we really committed still to what we said we were going to do? And so here we are this morning. There is two ways that this goes. Some of us come and we say, God, none of us make a commitment to you perfectly. But what we have said in our life declared before you on the banks of the river for our friends and all of our church brothers and sisters, we have made a vow to live for you and we commit to our vow. And that is what we do on these weeks. Week by week, we say the vow continues. The vow to live for Christ. I will see you at the next worship gathering to renew my vow to you, Lord. I'm crying out to you, admitting that I need cleansing still, that your word still has not been perfectly lived out in my life. But I said I was going to live for you, and I'm still going to live for you. And Jesus says, anyone who follows me must pick up my cross, and I'm here again to pick it up. And Ecclesiastes says, if that's not the vow you made to God, it's better to never make it at all. Verse 6, don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was in error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? In whatever way we exchange the will of God for our own, there is an excuse that comes up from our flesh. And so what Solomon's saying is, you make these promises to God, you make these vows to God, and if you're not careful, you're actually giving room for your flesh to come up with an excuse. It's like, well, I said Africa, but that's pretty far. I don't know. Uh, why don't we, how about we give $10 to the Red Cross? Would that be good? And it's like you just gave room for excuse. Well, I said that I was going to live for you and serve you, but how about when the next person asks if I'm a Christian, I'll say yes. And it's like, we're just giving room. And now what actually happens, because when you get saved by grace, not of works, lest anyone should boast, it says you're, you're brought into good works that were prepared for you beforehand. And what happens if you exchange the will of God for your own after you've committed to him, you got to replace it with something. Whatever God has called you to that you make an excuse to to do something else, that something else now becomes the work of your hands. That's something else as as Paul will write to the New Testament in the New Testament church, he'll say, that is now your building with substances that will not survive the fire. It is wood, hay, and stubble. And whatever you exchange God's will for, you give an excuse for your work of your hands to be destroyed. And that is one of the lessons of Ecclesiastes, that if you're not living for God, the preacher's job is to affirm in you that you have chose a meaningless pursuit that will eventually be, like the wind, vanity. It will disappear. And it will not happen today, probably. In whatever way God has called you something and you've made an excuse and done something else, you may continue in that. It may be successful for the next 10 to 20 to 30 to 80 years of your life, but there will come a day when the works of your hands are destroyed and you meet your maker and he says, you rich fool, your soul is required of you. Exchanging the will of God for your own will never, ever, ever produce something of quality in your life. And that's not just your call. That's the way that your relationships happen. That's the way that you live in your neighborhood. That's the way that you walk out of church and choose how to walk in the obedience of God's word when you leave this place. The works of your hands are to God's glory or to God's anger. Which brings us the final passage that we'll look at this morning. And as I've been preaching through Ecclesiastes, listening to the sermons that have been preached to our church, I find there to be a common challenge in every sermon. And that is, how do you talk about meaninglessness and how do you talk about emptiness or vain pursuits, whether it's with money or the, the toil under the sun or the way that you can vainly pursue God in church? 
and have it end well and is an encouraging message. Because if we just close the book right now, it's like, okay, church can be very empty and vain, and I'm not sure if I'm qualified, so uh, maybe I'll see you never. And that's not how it ends. So far, every pastor, by God's grace, that has preached has ended with a moment of great encouragement. And I find it here in verse 7. So he says in verse 7, For the multitude of dreams and many words are also vanity, but fear God. Fear of God is the answer to every temptation to live at a surface level, vain pursuit in a religious pursuit of God that turns you into a fool. There is a distinction that separates the two forks in the road, and it is the fear of God. Are you here pursuing the word of God as though it has the power to cut through bone and marrow, soul and spirit? Are you here entering into the body of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, born again by the power of his spirit, knowing that the presence of God, the holy, holy, holy God who created heaven and earth and sent his son to absorb the wrath of his anger is meeting us here this morning. And that's a challenge that surprisingly and shockingly was restored and renewed in Africa for me. You'd think the fear of God wouldn't the most blessed country in the window of peace and prosperity understand the sovereignty and the goodness of God more than anyone? And it's like, no, that's not how it works. Unfortunately, you study history, and the more God blesses, the less people fear him. And you go all the way to Africa, where people are living on about a dollar a day, and stereotypically to our view of Africa, living in tiny homes with, with enough money to get through the week. And they fear God and worship him with a sense of awe and glory unto his name that inspires us. I was talking to Gene, and he was describing coming to America. And when you hear his testimony, which you will hear soon, because he's definitely going to come and share to our body of believers because of all that God is doing to give himself glory through him. But his testimony is radical. God saved him from a war-torn country, saved him from even watching people get killed right in front of him and set him aside for the work of the ministry. And Gene made a vow to God, I will live for you forever. He brings him to Boise and shares the goodness of God. And he was sharing with a coworker. And he says, that's awesome, but it's probably coincidence because there is no God. And Gene, for the first time in his life in Boise, Idaho, had met his very first atheist. I was like, he had to come to beautiful Boise, Idaho to find someone who has rejected the concept of a good creator God. He said, yes, we do not have atheism in Africa. We have paganism, and we have witch doctors who believe in the dark magic, and we have the creator God. But there is no, there is no sense in the people to, to chalk it all up to chance and to believe that everything is at the whim of our own efforts. Everyone there has a reverence for a God. And it was very clear when we saw it. And it was restored in us because where the fear of God is lacking, you know what is replacing the fear of God? Always, it's the fear of man. It's the fear of people. It's the worry that if you don't come to church, someone will notice. If you don't have the right words, someone will call you out. If you don't stand up to sing, someone will see you. And so much of the religious theater that we fall into is the fear of people. And we had to walk through that as we were going to Africa. There was everywhere we went, Gene made it a point for us to preach the gospel, lest anyone that we came encounter with didn't know the power of Christ who came 
to represent the fear of God that pointed to a God of love and took the anger of God and placed it all on the wrath and the, 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 the cross of his son so that we could be spared and live life eternal. The gospel good news. And so we shared it with one of these orphanages and raised the hands of anyone who wanted to accept the message. And, and as they accepted the message, it was like, we got to get them to the baptismal waters immediately. And as we're going there, we've got a 15 passenger filled with 40 people. So it's like we could have got more by African standards. <laughs> and we, we came up with a great plan because we were going to take pictures to share and play the witness to the glory of God. And our great plan was all of these orphans, these beautiful God-ordained orphans to meet him at this river happened to be black. And we, good news, we had two black pastors. So it was like uh, we, we got a great plan. We don't want to offend anyone. I, came, I said to Gene, hey, Gene, I don't want to offend anyone. And, you know, what might happen is if we, being white, baptize these kids who are black, uh, you know, some people may think that we're colonizing them. And, you know, maybe they're just accepting the American God. And, you know, so why don't you do all the baptisms? You guys do it. And we thought that was like a great plan. And, and Gene and the other pastors looked at me and they said, who are these people? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a good question. Well... Mostly the internet, I guess. <laughs> so the internet's always lurking. You've got to be mindful of people that are, are going to judge the way the gospel and is presented. And he said, you need to do the Lord's work and stop worrying about those people. And it was the only time I saw Gene frustrated. Because the alternative would be me and the white team sitting back and basically saying, you guys do everything and we'll just take pictures and sit back. And Gene's like... We need your help. The gospel needs help in Africa and in the Congo. And you want us to do it all? You're here. Why don't you help? And so it's like, okay, God, in your sight, I can represent you. And in your sight, I can offer this, this amazing moment unto your name and unto your glory. And so we're just like, who cares what people think? Because we represent not America, we don't represent white people. We represent the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we've called to be ambassadors. And it stirred something in me that I have to share with all of you because this will be the fork in the road as to whether or not we live as part of a generation that gets to see God glorified in the gospel being preached and people being saved and baptized and a revival of his people, not fearing man, but worshiping him from the depths of his heart. And the, 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 the question is, who do we fear? Who do we fear? Do we fear the God, the God of all justice, the God of mercy, the God of the, the word who sent his son to lay down his life, absorb the wrath of God, and conquer death, leave it in the grave, rise again on the third day, and sit on the right hand of the Father, and then give us all the free gift of his spirit for anyone who calls on it. Or do we fear the mob? Do we fear the people who want nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus? Do we fear the people who would think about all of the ways that our country is divided and every time that we land on the side of God's mercy and his grace and his justice, they clench their fist and they're angry? Because I have to tell you, as a pastor, as a believer, as a person who's just navigating the waters of our world, there's often times that I fear man, that I do not want to talk about the truth of God's word that I do not want to represent the goodness and the glory of God at, at worry of offending people who want to live differently. And I know I'm not alone. 
I know many of us walk out of this sanctuary and we think, wow, I'm so glad I had a safe haven to worship God and now I'm back to undercover Christian. And now I'm back to trying to navigate how to be politically correct and how to love my neighbor without offending them. And I, and I know by God's sovereignty, you will do that. You'll speak the truth in love. But how many of us say nothing because we worry about offending the darkness rather than the light? Ecclesiastes says, if you want to solve the problem of empty religion, it all comes down to the fear of God. Who do you come to please? Who do you come to worship? When you open the word, who's it for? And we'll answer that question now because the fear of God can in itself be a sensitive topic. The fear of God and just the awe and the reverence of him is easy to accept. But the fear of God that would also understand that disobeying God, not doing God's will, leaving here as though you own your own life, doesn't make you tremble. Anything outside of the will of God should make you tremble. Anything that you choose to do that isn't part of God calling you to teach you his commandments, that you would have joy and joy more abundant and life and life more abundant. Anything we do that is not part of God's good plan for our life should cause us to fear. And the fear of God will be restored when we realize that there is a God who has made us and he is creator and he is judge and he is just. And in the end, he is the only one that we will answer to. And the fear of man will try to pull us away from that and look at all of the people in the mob who tell us we're crazy. And so who are you living for? Who are you trying to please? Every week we take communion and communion is always administered underneath the, the umbrella of the gospel. God loved you enough to not even withhold his own son, but that his anger would be pleased by punishing sin, by being just, by dealing with all of the crooked lines that all of us have drawn in the history of the world. And rather than you pay the debt, having his wrath poured out on the cross of his son, and it is gospel good news, but it is also a reverence for the fear of God, knowing that sin will be punished and that we are all sinners, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us have one hope, and it is the banner of the blood of Christ on the cross. And today we'll take communion with that in mind. And I hope that we take communion drawing near to hear, near to hear of the justice of God near to hear the love of God, near to hear the power of God, because communion represents the body and the blood, and it also reminds us that he's coming again, that he is not in the grave, that it's been conquered for us. He rose again and gave all of us the power of his spirit to do likewise. So for those of us who come desiring refreshment in God's word, may we all be cleansed of the ways that we live just on the surface of religion. May we all receive communion today as a way to say, God, thank you once again. When I behold your son upon the cross, I realize that you love me more than I imagined. I don't want to not live for you, God. And for those of you who are here who have never understood that this ain't it, maybe you're here thinking, well, I came to church, that's better than nothing. You came to hear. You came to hear the message that unless you stand underneath the protective power of the cross of Christ, 
The works of your hands have angered God and they will be destroyed. So we invite you to receive, just like I invited orphans in Africa. You're no different. We believe in a God who adopts all who believe into his family. And we pray that you would come in to the family by just taking communion with us now. And so why don't we stand and I'll just pray for this moment. We have an opportunity to worship God. May your words not be hasty. Some of you maybe just listen to this song. Some of you just sing as the Holy Spirit prompts you for the words that are for you. Some of you say yes or amen to this sermon. And some of you just sit in the silence that God has called you to just to hear his still and small voice. God, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We pray, God, that it would be more than just a a book or a talk. We pray, God, that we would be reminded that you are here in our midst, that you are drawing us near to you, giving us words from your mouth, from the, the, the word of God to our ears, that we would listen and obey. May we be saved from a surface religion that turns us into fools. May we fear you in a way that understands that when we fear you, when we obey you, when we live for you, we experience the joy of knowing you, the joy of living for you. May we renew that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.